Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. I always essentially knew I was funny. And I know comedy is very subjective and there's plenty of people that don't find me funny, but I always thought I was funny. And I don't know why a lot of comics shy away from saying that. Like, yeah, yeah. I always back myself. Otherwise, why would you get up on stage yes. in the first place <laughs> yes. and try your hand at stand-up if you don't think you're slightly amusing? And also, I'm very much happy in my lane. I'm not trying to win any awards. I'm not trying to change the world through my comedy. I actually just want to give people an escape for those 90 minutes and make people laugh. Welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the effervescent Joel Creasy. Joel is best known as one of the country's leading stand-up comedians, having begun performing at the age of just 16. He's performed everywhere from the Melbourne International Comedy Festival to the New York International Fringe Festival and the Edinburgh Fringe. But beyond comedy, Joel is also an author, an actor and TV presenter who, after a stint on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, became one of our country's most recognisable faces on television. But it was in 2020 when Joel got the call up to join Australia's number one drive program, replacing Marty Sheargold on Kate, Tim and Marty. In this chat, we talk about confidence, anxiety, coming out as a teenager and what it's been like taking a job mid-pandemic in one of the most listened to radio programs in the country. This was such a fun and wonderful interview to do. We genuinely adored our time with Joel and we just have one thing to warn you about before we properly jump in. This interview did not quite go to plan and we ended up bonding with Joel far more than we have with any other guest, but we will leave you to listen to find out why. Okay, here's Joel. Joel Creasy. Hi. Hi. This is a big deal to me. I told you as we walked in. Massive, massive fan. That is so kind. Thank you so much. People don't, like, I'm not saying specifically about me, but people don't say that to me often enough. I think it's really, like, it's a really cool thing to tell people. We've made my day. You know as well, you've always had great skin. 
And I've always appreciated, I went and saw you do stand up, would have been years ago. Yeah. And my sister and I just sat in the audience being like, what is his skincare routine? Oh my gosh, well, I was actually a bit nervous coming in here today and I've put a bit of concealer on because I've been commuting back and forth between Melbourne and Sydney. <laughs> and I actually love wearing a mask on the plane because yeah, like, no. no one looks at you. But it's been killing my skin. So thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I use Drunk Elephant. I oh, very nice. Product. Very yeah. bougie, actually. Is that bougie? My boyfriend gets it for me. So I, <laughs> he's, he's super into his skincare. And I, I've only just gotten into it in like the past year and I'm kind of hooked. Well, you look amazing. Oh, thanks so much. Anyway, I'm just happy to be here in the background (laughs) of this whole thing. Um, It's the best day of my life. (laughs) We are so happy to be here. Michelle has been very nervous all day, so I can lead us into the chat so she doesn't stumble over her words. We start with the same question every interview and it is to say, what were you like as a kid? We knew you were born in Sydney, grew up in Perth. Yes. What were you like? Well, people always, I think, because I'm a stand-up comic, assume I was the class clown Mm. and I certainly wasn't. I was like the sassy one up the back of the room making like cracks about the teacher's heels. So yeah, I think a lot of like people that went to school with me are like, oh my God, you're a stand-up comic. Really? You were never funny at school. Really? Well, you're an engineer and you were never very bright. <laughs> there is a lot of people like that where you're like, oh, you're doing that now. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh, well, I've got everyone on Facebook and when I'm feeling quite blue. I go and stalk absolutely every single human I went to school with. I'm like, oh, okay, well, you're married. <laughs> it's also the people who peaked in high school never amount to that much. Sorry, but it's the ones who peak after high school that really go on to great things. Says someone who clearly didn't peak in high school. There's <laughs> <laughs> the insecurity just pouring out of your veins. But what about people like, high school were the best years of my life? Oh, like, no. That's fine, but really? Kind of depressing like, as yeah. well, though. You're I want to talk you? to you about your childhood because mm. you did liken your mum to Chris Jenner in a post. Oh, yes, she really is. Earlier this year, you wrote, when I was younger, I used to get my mum to follow me around the house and do impromptu photo shoots with me. Mm-hmm. She was the original Chris Jenner. Your mum was a West End actress. Your dad was a model. Mm-hmm. Were you always destined to be where you are right now? Yeah, yeah I think I, I didn't have a chance. So, yeah, my mum is uh, my mum's awesome. She'd be a slightly more awesome if she'd filmed a sex tape like Chris Jenner had for <laughs> Kim. Um, but uh, she, yeah, she was a West End actress. She was incredible. She also sang on cruise ships and she was the ballroom dance instructor on a Russian <laughs> cruise ship for many years, which I think is so, like, old school and cool and bougie. And then my dad was the model and he was a solo man in like the 1970s commercials. Hot. Yeah. Yeah. So you're yeah, the yeah. hot dad basically. Yeah. He would, yeah well, he, he would, he will love it. You that. <laughs> um, and it was very, it was a very homoerotic ad actually come to think of it. And then they'd met a few times before that, but they properly met on the set of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. They were both extras. <laughs> so it's the most like. My yeah. parents met at teacher's college. <laughs> Like, but honestly, this is, you couldn't make this up, could you? It's So, like, yeah, growing up, I loved Star Wars and I thought it was so rock and roll that my parents were in Star Wars. And, yeah, they were both members of the Rebel Alliance. So, yeah, it was very, very cool. And so I didn't really have a chance. And also, like, a lot of times when you tell your, I think most comics, when they tell their parents they want to be a stand-up comedian, they're like, please, no, like, do anything but. Do law. Well, that's what they, I mean, my parents sort of wanted me to do that. But when I told my parents I want to be a stand-up comic, they were like, okay, we'll drive you to your first gig. Because I was 16 and they had to sign me in because it was at a pub. (laughs) Weird day when your mum's the heckler. (laughs) Well, that's what we were going to ask you about. That is so young to decide to do stand-up comedy, especially at that age. Like, it's a precarious age, lots going on. You're full of insecurity. What makes a 15, 16-year-old say, you know what, I'm going to go up on stage and test my jokes out? 
Well, I think I'd used humour as such a defence mechanism in my life because I obviously knew I was gay. I was actually out at school. I didn't have a lot of issues with guys in my year group. I went to an all-boys school. It was more the teachers that really? had more umbrage with my homosexuality. <laughs> but uh, but I'd always used it as a defence mechanism. It was there to laugh yeah. it off in case anyone came for me. And I was like, hang on, I can monetize this. <laughs> so, yeah, I entered a stand-up comedy competition. I'd sit up late at night when I was meant to be studying in, like, grade 11 and grade 12 and watched a lot of, like, the great women of comedy, like, particularly Australian comedy like Fiona Lachlan, Judith Lucy, Denise Scott, and then Joan Rivers and Kathy Griffin were my two other favourites. Whereas most boys were like relating to like Leighton Hewitt or Pat Rada. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm just like Joan Rivers. I'm going to do stand-up comedy. And I, and I signed up and did. So when you came out, did you kind of explore parts of your personality that you maybe pushed down before you were out? Yeah, I was, I was desperately trying to push down, but they really were popping up like crazy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It was funny because of my group of friends that I went to high school with, they're all gay, it turns out, pretty much. But I was the first of the group to come out. I knew like, I knew they were all gay, particularly because I was hooking up with half of them. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was like a few of them. It took them a little while longer to accept it, and then they eventually came out themselves. I was like, well, TikTok. <laughs> So going back to these gigs for a second when you were 15 or 16 and you Mm. were like testing these jokes, how did they go? Like how did the gigs actually go? My first stand-up gig, I actually played a character. (laughs) This is so lame. I played a a flight attendant. So I had like an onstage persona, a flight attendant who was hell-bent on taking over the world. I did it for like four gigs and then I was like, "Mm, maybe I'll just do actual stand-up as me. But they went really well. So my first gig, I entered a competition called Raw Comedy and made it all the way through to the the state final. So my third ever stand-up gig, I was performing in front of like 2,000 people. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was full on. And I did that for a few years in Perth and then I was like, well, I have enough material now to do a whole hour at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, <laughs> which was very presumptuous. I was 18 and I was working at Nova, ironically, as a Casanova. What's that? Yeah. I was one of those people that would drive around and oh, have yeah. free shit. Yeah. Oh, you're like the Red Bull Yes. Oh, oh, my God, we used to hang out with the Red Bull girls all the time. So <laughs> be the Nova Casanovas and the Red Bull girls and we'd be down there at, like, Cottesloe Beach and we were the ones on the radio. They'd be like, hi, it's John the Casanovas. We're down here at Westfield Garden City. Come down and grab a nice cold can of Coke. So, yeah, I was, I was working. Working as a Casanova, and I was also working in McCafe. I was the McCafe manager in Melville, <laughs> Myrie in WA. So I saved up all my money and invested it in my first comedy festival show. Oh my god! Yeah, and I was playing a venue in Melbourne that's called the Kitten Club. It's since closed. It was on Little Collins Street, and no one was coming to my shows. We'd like paper it every night with like backpackers, half of whom couldn't speak English and had no idea what I was talking about. Every afternoon, I'd go around the streets around the CBD and chalk my name, Joel Creasy, and arrows all the way to my venue. And then I'd stand there for hours handing out flyers in the hope that someone would come to the show. And luckily a manager then came to the show and was like, okay, there's something here. Do you want to move to Melbourne or Sydney? And I decided on Melbourne because Wicked was in Melbourne at the time. (laughs) Was that really it? Not our beautiful cafes, our beautiful restaurants? Seriously, the reason. Wicked, the musical's in Melbourne. And I figured, well, it's there for another year. Oh, my God, I love it. enter the lottery and go and see it every day. And I did. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. These are my favourite kinds of stories, though, because it's easy to look at you now in your early 30s and think he's gone on and done incredible things. But there was a time where you had to push through So much doubt. What made you push through it? Because a lot of people, I think, get to that stage and then just go, you know what, it's really hard. I feel really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and kind of shit about myself. What was it that pushed you to be like, no, this is for me? I think I I sort of knew I could do it. And I, I know a lot of comics don't maybe like it. 
not necessarily when I say it, but like, don't like that sort of confidence. But I always essentially knew I was funny. And I know comedy is very subjective and there's plenty of people that don't find me funny, but I always thought I was funny. And I don't know why a lot of comics go, you know, sort of like shy away from saying that. Like yeah, yeah. I always back myself. Otherwise, why would you get up on stage yes. in the first place <laughs> yes. and try your hand at stand-up if you don't think you're slightly amusing? I know all my other flaws and that's a much longer list for another time. But, yeah, so like I did loads of gigs in like regional Australia where I was heckled off stage. I've done gigs where I performed on pool tables when I was starting out. I do like five or six stand-up gigs a night for free. You get paid in like beers, which I wasn't really super big on. I did gigs that were lit by like construction lighting and like the back of a dingy old bar in like Fitzroy, Melbourne to three people on a Tuesday night. So I definitely did all that sort of stand-up stuff initially, which really cuts your teeth. It sounds like just listening to you now that there is like a huge inherent confidence within you and perhaps always has been. But is that been the case? Like, is that a fair thing to say? It just feels oh. like every time you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that because I back myself. I'm going to keep doing that because I back myself. I'm going to push through doubt because I back myself. No, because I am. I have a terrible anxiety. I have awful OCD, but I can manage to split my brain into like business brain yeah. and then Joel brain. And Joel brain is a nightmare and, and like very shy. I never come out stage door after my shows because like even if it's a great great show. I know I've had a great show. I'm too shy to talk to my audience after in case someone didn't enjoy it. Really? Yeah. So that's Joel brain thinking. But then business brain is like, well, you've got to get back on stage tomorrow night and make people laugh because that's your job. Mm. So yeah, it's sort of like weighing up the two. That's hard. You spoke earlier about being not boot off stage, but heckled on stage and kind of copying shit from yeah. an audience. I want to ask you, you were chased out of Colac in 2011 yes. with like homophobic slurs and threats of abuse. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's difficult enough to be heckled by people when you're up on stage. It's another layer when that heckling might be homophobic or when there's a layer of like discrimination there yeah. as well. Can you tell us about that incident? The first time I went there, I was touring as part of like a big comedy festival road show with four other comics. And after the show, we were sort of we were signing merch, which always made me very nervous as I explained before, but it was part of the contract. And this guy came up to me and he goes, I thought you were really funny. Still hate poofters though. And I was like, oh, okay. And I sort of laughed it off. I was like, whatever, defence mechanism. But a lady standing behind him was a reporter for the Colac Herald, the local newspaper, and wrote up this article about how I copped some homophobic abuse after the show. So then a few weeks later, a local diversity group got in touch and said, we're having a big sort of like local meetup in a few months' time. Will you come back and do a bit of a presentation? And I was like, sure, I'll come back. I've got nothing on. So drive back out to Colac with a couple of mates and waiting outside this LGBTQIA plus friendly gig were like 30 teenagers, which doesn't sound threatening, but they're like 17. Yeah. They're fully grown men abusing me as I walk into the gig. And they don't like that I'm at the gig. They sort of come in and they start threatening some of the younger queer kids there. And I was probably like 19, 20 at the time. So I was like, I was sticking up for them. They all went outside, obviously had a bit of a, a little meeting and decided we'll get him on his way out. So on my way out, they started throwing stuff at us and then they chased me and my friends to my my girlfriend's gold holder Astra. I remember that. And we ran to the car and we maybe threw a few insults back ourselves. And then it was full on like throwing stuff, trying to get into the car. And I was like, drive, drive, drive. 
thankfully my best friend Ashley, wonderful lesbian driving the car, so we were out (laughs) of there quick. And, yeah, it was really an insane experience. I know you turned that into comedy and you made that material, but did that really affect you? Like as someone else with anxiety, Yeah, an incident like that would really profoundly affect me. I mean, it really affected me. I think it affected my parents a bit more because they were, for the first time, they were like, oh, maybe this profession can be a little dangerous. And I didn't tell them. But because I – so as we were driving out of Colac, the second tyre as I was chased to the car by these 30 hood rats, I tweeted about it. And that's how it blew up and it was sort of made all the news and and it was everywhere. And I forgot to tell my parents. So a few hours later, mum calls and goes, did something happen today? I was like, oh, yeah, forgot to mention, I almost got beaten to death. So, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a really weird time. Oh, I went back to Colac like, then a few years later and filmed a documentary there about it being whether it is a particularly homophobic town. Spoiler alert, was at the time. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it, did, it definitely did rock my confidence and also rock my confidence touring regionally, which is where I actually love playing because yeah. I think they get so... Well, they get excited that people are coming out oh, and they're kind of awesome. making the effort. Yeah, they're the best crowds. And I've done gigs where like CWA have done the catering. <laughs> Literally people have arrived on tractors and horseback have done gigs like that in where we performed in barns. I actually love doing those sort of gigs and it really irked me that this Colac gig put me off for a while. So you've said that your parents like were very supportive of you doing the comedy thing. This might have been the first time they sort of were shaken in that belief thinking like maybe it's not as safe as we thought it was. But how were they when you said to them like I'm going to drop out of uni after a few months and this is the thing I'm going to pursue? Well, I was studying political science and foreign affairs. If you don't Which mind. Which is, like, very impressive. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I thought I was going to be Julie Bishop, essentially. I was like, <laughs> we've, got this, we've got the same hair. And so I, I just wanted to be the foreign affairs minister and travel the world. But I, I just wasn't enjoying it. And then I had started doing stand-up. And then the straw that broke the camel's back was one day my lecturer who I wasn't enjoying, told me I have messy handwriting and I was looking for any out. So I was like, oh, that's it. He's really looking for any out. Oh, any out. I was literally stormed out. I was like, I don't need to put up with this level of abuse and stormed out. Oh, my God. How petty. So then I called my mum and I was like, I just, can I have a year off from, from uni and just pursue this comedy thing? And she was like, yeah, cool. And then, yeah, haven't gone back to uni yet. If you see me sign back up to Curtin College in uh, <laughs> Western Australia, you know things are not going well. Well, luckily you became very famous very young. I didn't realise, but you really hit your stride in like 2011, 2012. Yeah. You are what, 21, 22? It's weird. And young. then people now start saying to me, because I only just turned 30, I grew up watching you on TV. Yeah. And this is people, like, I'm out at a nightclub and people <laughs> will come up to me and say, I grew up watching you on TV. And I go, that's not possible. And they're like, well... Yeah, because I go if if they did start watching when they were like eleven or twelve, that is completely possible. Yeah, and also horrifying. <laughs> it does feel like you've been around for a while, and you are only thirty. Like, what was it like to find fame and success that young, like at twenty one, twenty two? It was it was weird. I got I started getting a lot of work on Channel Ten, and I was big in the comedy scene. And then I started touring with Joan Rivers, which was the best, most incredible experience of my life. And that propelled me on to doing I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which I did the first season of. We had no idea if anyone was watching. We were there in Africa. The network was still working out the show. Like it's not like the show is now, where they have heaps to do. We were just essentially camping in the jungle for six it was weeks. Like Big Brother, but yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah. was like because it was seven seasons ago or something. So we were just sort of sitting around all day going, gosh, I hope people are watching this show. I've <laughs> got no idea. Little did we know it was doing, like, incredibly well. Yeah. And it really hit home for me when I landed back in Sydney Airport and there were the cameras everywhere and people stopping me in the airport and being like, my 
probably my children. It's always my children. Like, <laughs> okay, my children loved you. And that's when I was like, oh, my gosh, okay, this is, this is something. And then it's sort of gone on from there. And I'm very grateful, very lucky. Do you really like it? What, being faint? No, like more known? Sometimes. <laughs> I love like, how I was, you just stumbled over that. That's going to be my grab from the episode. <laughs> well, I'm fat. Well, no. Yeah, yeah, please do. I, see, that was my anxiety. I can't bring myself to of say course. it. Of course. I'll say it for you. I would consider you famous. Thang, yeah, thang. <laughs> I sometimes like it and then sometimes I don't because there's people that really don't like me and sometimes I just kind of want to chill out and, and I don't know. Like the other night, for example, at a restaurant, I was having dinner with my family and this guy just wouldn't leave me alone all night, yeah. all night, all night. Mm. And my parents thought it was so rock and roll that I'd been recognised. But <laughs> I was like, Dad, I've spent all night talking to the guy sitting behind me. I haven't yeah. gotten to see yeah. you and you're only in town for one night. Yeah. But I mean, if that's the worst part of my day, I can totally suck it up. It's <laughs> <laughs> a real famous person thing to say. Yeah. Here's an example, but it's not all bad. It's not all bad. Yeah. I mean, you did write a memoir a couple of, of years ago, and I want to know, how did you make the decision when you wrote that memoir about your life, what you were going to share and what you weren't going to share? Because as you say, if you've got that business brain and that Joel brain and one's kind of anxious and one's like, nah, this is really good for the job. Yeah. How do you work that out? Well, I really just share everything because yeah. I just think it's funnier. I don't make up fake names on stage. All my stand-up is autobiographical. I never will give a celebrity another name or change the name or not say who it is because it's not funny for me then. And I've got to find the story humorous as I'm telling it as well, even if it's the 300th time I've told it. Yeah. So for the book, it was a bit weird because all my stand-ups autobiographical. It was a bit tricky because I'd done maybe seven solo shows by that point, each running at about 90 minutes. So I really had plundered my, my back catalogue <laughs> for material, but just put it all out there on, on the page. It was a real, it was weird writing a book. I was 26. I felt a bit awkward writing it because I was like... <laughs> well, you're speaking to two people who also wrote a book together about life at 26. <gasps> oh, so. yeah, okay. it's like amongst friends. Just a few narcissists. Do you yeah, feel, exactly. I feel weird, right? Yeah, like, of, course, yes. of course. I feel very conflicted about it. This is actually a good combo for us to all have. I don't think mm. many people have this experience. I feel conflicted because we're now, I'm now 27 yes. and I look back at a book that I wrote at 26 and I'm already like, fuck, I know so much more now. I know, you're saying, I, I read some bits back and I go, okay, well, I really put some effort into that chapter. And all that chapter was obviously running a bit behind and overdue <laughs> because I've flown through that. There's no jokes in that chapter. I think the only way that we even processed it was like, okay, well, we don't have the answers to things, not going to pretend that we do. But at the very least, this is a nice snapshot in time that we can look back on in 20 years totally. and be like, that's pretty funny that that's what we thought then or I know, something yeah, like that. That yeah. was a real and honest snapshot of time. Yeah, that's a really – okay, great. That's actually how I'm going I'm to look at it. <laughs> You're welcome. You've really helped me. More of my issue with my book is I don't love the cover. <laughs> like <laughs> oh. I was like, oh, really? That's what I chose to wear of anything in the world? And um, it's just a black and white suit. I was about to say you're wearing a suit. Yeah. It's just a suit. And then also in the acknowledgements, I forgot to thank like one of my best friends. And I remember <laughs> the reason I wrote the book as well is I love throwing a – my work – ethos is that a job's only worth doing if there's a party at the end. Yeah. So I love throwing a party. I love hosting. So I threw a really big, really over-the-top book launch party. I even had, this is how much I like Wicked, I had the original Elphaba from the Australian production of Wicked <laughs> come in and sing Defying Gravity. She <laughs> in the middle of the room because I read a bit of the book about moving to Melbourne because yeah. of Wicked and Elphaba appeared and she walked onto stage and sang Defying Gravity. It was so over-the-top. So then at the after-after party, because I don't know when to stop. I said to my one of my dearest friends, oh, my God, have you seen your name in the acknowledgements? And he goes, I'm not in there. I said, yes, you are. And I turned to my manager and said, pass me a copy of the book. And I flicked to the acknowledgements. I was like, oh, my God, you're not in there. And I was like, okay, I'll put you, I'll put you in the reprint. I'll put you in the reprint. But it didn't go to a reprint. So. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Coming up after the break, why last year Joel genuinely feared for the future of his career. But first a word from today's sponsor. One chapter that did get picked up a lot, and I'm sure you know what this is going to be about, yes. is you sleeping or having at least a fling with an AFL player. Yes. That went really, I hate the word viral, but it went mm. semi-viral around yeah. Melbourne in particular mm-hmm. because there are currently no openly gay AFL players. Know, yeah. Did you realise that was going to be picked up by so many people or that that would get such a spotlight on it? I mean, it was kind of a throwaway part of my book but then when I sent the chapter I mean I guess I sort of knew because I'm not a complete idiot but when I sent the chapter through to the publisher I mean it was via email but I could feel their eyes light up and then that was what they cut out and and sent to all the papers and stuff so the papers had that chapter in advance I didn't expect it to blow up quite as much but I've been throwing I've thrown out so many red herrings over the years about like what team and who so some people think it's yeah a mole like the the answers that have come in over who it might be no one's guessed Ben Cousins yet no (laughs) (laughs) did you stress though did you stress that maybe someone could get to the bottom of it or were you like no I've protected them enough I think I protected them enough and I've seen them once since and they gave me the thumbs up they were chill it's also so sad that we even have to like be at the stage where everyone's so protected like because people are so scared to come out it's so depressing like it's 2021 we haven't had a single afl player come out as gay i know and i don't even like i we don't stay in touch and i don't even know what his sexuality is maybe he was just dabbly at the time and and that's just a part of his life that he wants to keep private and cool good for him but yeah i yeah it's it's funny how people really were like desperately trying to put a label on someone i was like it's just a was just to highlight the fact that there are gay players in the afl it really doesn't make a difference. No. You are an open book. I mean, you've said that on the mic a couple of times right yeah. now. And you do, is it two or three hours of live radio every day? Well, it's two hours. The first hour is like the best of the day before. Yeah. But we've started getting in early, I guess because we all like each other and having a chat then. So, but yeah, we're technically live from 4pm. So it's a lot of content to be putting out in the world, particularly live, especially when work you've done before has been thrown out into headlines and sort of made stories around. Does any part of you get anxious on the job thinking, God, any story? I could tell could end up anywhere or can you not think like that? Well, we always joke that on our show we never get picked up by the Daily Mail. <laughs> like every day like, when are we going to get picked up by the Daily Mail? Kyle and Jackie are on there every, every you two are wrong. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't mind it. Do you know, it was never, radio was never on my 2020 bingo card. I was really shocked when I got the call and the offer, I, although I worked at the Casanova back in the day. It's not something I particularly focused on, but I just love entertaining and the thought of like getting to make people laugh and having a laugh for two hours hours a day. It was pretty cool and very mm. enticing. So I was like, yes, yes, yes. When they called, yes, I'll absolutely do it. And it was the one show that I did really genuinely listen to. Well, we were going to ask you about this. We we're going to do it later on the show, but I'll ask you about it now mm. because it's a huge, colossal task to take on the number one drive spot and to go, all right, I'm replacing one of three. And Marty Sheargold had been in that spot on Kate and oh, Marty for what, 10 years? A long time. And I'm a huge fan as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. What compelled you? Like, obviously, it's very alluring and it's a great opportunity, but yeah. it is fucking big shoes to fill. Were you super anxious? I was so anxious. I like bit all the skin off my hands. And it all happened during stage four Melbourne lockdown. So, like, you know, this is when you couldn't have anyone to your house. You can only leave your house for four reasons. So I got the call during 
during stage four lockdown. Then Marty made his announcement that he was leaving during stage four lockdown. Then there was a few weeks of, of people speculating and there was a lot of speculation about me. Then there was the announcement that it was me during stage four lockdown. And then I started the job during stage four lockdown. So at no point could I like go out with a couple of girlfriends and pop a bottle of champagne and take my mind off things. I'd only ever leave the house to secretly go to the studio and come back. And then all I had was my phone to look at. And of course I was reading all the yeah. all the hate that was coming through. And fair enough. Like Marty deserved that because he was he's such a he was such a legend and such a big part of the show that, you know, you you expect that when someone leaves. So it was it was very it was very nerve-wracking. But it's like there's no separation and particularly at that time there was no separation between work and home. So as you say, you're you're got leaving the studio and going home to your own thoughts, which I imagine you catastrophize. But how has it been sort of entering a dynamic where it's two people who've worked together forever and you're just mm-hmm. sort of like jumping in being like, all right, we've got to make this work now in a new kind of rhythm. I'm the third wheel. I know. <laughs> At first I was like, oh, my God, I feel like, you know, that that annoying friend that's like, where are you going? What bar are you going? <laughs> um, and and there, luckily I've known Tim for a long time and he's he's been a really good mate. And Kate I'd met a few times. I've also been on the show. I think I was probably their most regular guest on the show. Yeah, hence right. why I got the gig. And I'm a huge fan and she's absolutely divine. They both are. But it was a very strange way to build the dynamic also because I couldn't get to Sydney to be with them in studio and you guys get what it's like it's all about chemistry and and chemistry really is built in person so I was doing it all down the line out of Melbourne that's hard that's really hard and you couldn't get into New South Wales so at first I was going to go when you could just fly in yeah and then I was going to go when you could fly in and house quarantine and this is like everything changed over the space of a week and so I'd found a house that was all booked oh my gosh you've got to be oh my god is that is that a fire alarm Guys, missions are here. <laughs> Quickly jumping in. You would have heard an alarm go off in your ears. And yes, that was a fire alarm. It was a fire alarm. It's, we all looked up at the sky to be like, what the fuck is that sound? Where is it coming from? It was not a tester alarm. It's a real alarm. But we're now going to transition back into the episode, Zara. We've never, ever had this happen. Happy it happened with Joel. We really bonded out there. <laughs> so let us take you back to the chat. <laughs> We're back after a um, <laughs> we're back a fire alarm kerfuffle. So exciting! Did you put that on especially for me? Because if you did, thank you. There's <laughs> nothing like a bit of bonding being like, oh, now we have to stand outside for ten minutes I and I keep talking. Really enjoyed it. You brought in hot firefighters. Yeah. I mean, I can't complain. It was when like four firefighters streamed into the building. I'm like, okay, so this is not a test. This is a legit thing now. I know, and I thought I was like all being all like I knew what I was talking about. I was like, oh, they've got the jaws of life. <laughs> That was true. I didn't know what you were talking about. Okay, so we're back. Everyone is safe in the building for the record. And we were asking you about doing it, you know, from a different state. That's incredibly hard starting that in lockdown. Yeah. So it got got to the point where, yeah, so I couldn't do house quarantine in Sydney, couldn't do hotel quarantine at the state's expense. Then it it was a hotel quarantine at your own expense and I still couldn't get a permit to do hotel quarantine at my own expense. And I was literally begging the New South Wales government to put me in a holiday inn for two weeks at my own expense. Like, please. Please. <laughs> and my psych was like, I don't know if you should be on your own for two weeks in a hotel room, but okay. Um, so, yeah, so I sort of had to give in and go, right, get in the mindset of you're starting out of Melbourne, you're not going to be with the team. There was no one allowed also in the in the Nova building at the time because everyone was working from home. <sighs> my gorgeous producer, she had to wear a mask, so I didn't know really what, what 
one looked like. Mm. And all I was seeing was Tim and Kate on a, on a webcam. It was all very bizarre. But yeah. Yeah. They, were, they could not have been Tim and Kate and the whole team more accommodating and kinder. Which is exactly what you need, particularly last year. I mean, so many people struggled with mental illness and poor mental health. You wrote about this on your Instagram I really, I mean, it sounds weird to say I enjoyed this post, but I mean, I really loved this post that you put out. I think it was in the middle of Melbourne lockdown. You wrote, I don't know about you, but my mental health has been an absolute nightmare during Miss Rona's surprise 2020 headline gig. I'm a workaholic, complete germaphobe with OCD and crippling anxiety hot. What did the bad patches of last year look like for you? Oh, I guess like everyone, I just wasn't leaving the house. I was a, like, I was awful to be around. There were days where I couldn't get out of bed and Jack, my gorgeous partner, he's, he's a much more peppy person than me. So he'd sort of get me out of bed and he'd run me a bath and then he'd put me into the spare room just so I was like at least seeing a different part of the house. This was before the Nova offer came through. I thought I'm not going to work again. The arts are the last people that are going to get back on stage. I was a week into my brand new tour. Things like marketing and, and publicity and all that was already done and, and had been paid for. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to my industry? How long is this going to last? Because we are not essential stand-up comics. And it was just a very scary time. And I was just, I was nervous for me. I was nervous for, for Jack as well. It was all very full on. You mentioned Jack and you did say to us before we got on air, it's your four-year anniversary today. Yes, Is that right? right? Well, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Talk to us about how that bond has really carried you through the tougher times and sort of his impact on your life. He's amazing. He is the nicest human in the world. Like, he truly is the best. Everyone always asks, like, how was lockdown for you too? We got them great. Like, if anything, we're, we're stronger. And I can't imagine having done it with anyone else. He's just absolutely divine. And, yeah, he's... Yeah, he really is a very patient human because I could be an absolute nightmare. He just, yeah, he, he gets it, knows how to handle my ups and downs. <laughs> What's it about your relationship that makes it different to relationships that came before it? My relationship before it was I, we had a wonderful time for a, a bit there, but we were doing long distance. He was in LA, so that was like really, that was never going to work. I don't know. I guess... I mean, we live together. We've sort of like built, we've started to build a life together and we've kind of made it no secret that, you know, we plan on spending the rest of our lives together. So that helps. Whereas it's not one of those relationships where you're like, we'll just see how this goes for a few years. We're very much like, I'm in this, you're in this, let's do it. In that same Instagram post that Mish read before, there was another line where you wrote something that really interested me. You said, mm-hmm. like so many comedians, we've learned to harness this darkness, see the humour in it and turn it into comedy, thus making the audience laugh and providing us with therapy of sorts. Mm-hmm. I remember but um, we've had Celia Picola on this podcast. Yes, I love Celia. And she was awesome. We were talking to her a lot about how she was saying, you know, there is a lot of darkness in comedians, quite a lot, and they do harness that and turn it into comedy. But with you, I just, you seem so peppy and so enthusiastic all the time. It does surprise me. Would you say you still fall into that kind of category of people who do experience that sort of darkness and kind of can turn it into art? Nowhere near as much as some other comics. Everyone thinks backstage at a comedy show must be the most hilarious place in the world. (laughs) (laughs) It is the most depressing place in the world. Comics are not fun to hang around. I mean, I'm friends with like all kind of the Aussie comics, but I don't really hang out with them outside of work. But yeah, I mean, I always think that stand-up is therapy that you get paid to do. And it's awesome. And you can kind of like vent your issues to the audience. So in my club comedy, I don't do so much of that. But in my solo stand-up shows, I do get more into to the personal stuff to get off my chest. But, yeah, look, there are certainly darker comics than me. Mm. It was yeah. so interesting before when you said 
that you have some like harsh critique that you read or that you try to stay off your phone. Like when you join the radio station, you were yeah. reading all the commentary. You have, I think, the highest reviews I've seen of any stand-up comic for your stand-up shows. And That's I really nice. want to know about feedback and how you process it. Because part of me thinks if I buy into the five-star reviews, I've got to also buy into the one-star reviews yes, and then I give all of it too much weight. Yeah. How do you personally approach it? If you've got some people telling you you are godlike and the best and other people saying, oh, I fucking hate that guy or whatever, yeah. what do you do with it all? Well, I guess you just concentrate on the good ones. No. <laughs> um, I've, I've stopped having reviewers to my shows as much as possible. I actually, can I've, you stop that? Can you, you, like, you control you can that? As much, you, you can. Some festivals are pretty insistent that reviewers come along. But I also think that don't come and review me. People know what they're getting with me. Actually send that reviewer to, to a younger comic that could do with the space in the paper. But I now believe that social media has changed things and I would rather listen to my audience who are going to give me feedback on social media after, straight after the show. In fact, the first thing I do is check my phone and check Instagram and Twitter seconds after getting on stage and that's where (laughs) the feedback is. And I care more, I guess, about what someone who's bought a ticket to my show and I'm also always very highly aware that not only have people bought a ticket to my show, they've taken time out of their schedule, they've booked it in advance, they've they've sent messages to, to, to friends, they've maybe gone out for dinner, they've booked a babysitter, they've paid for an Uber, it's not just the ticket. So I'd much rather impress them than the douche sports columnist that's come in to review my comedy show who has no credentials in the arts, who got a free ticket. I'd much rather entertain the people that kind of want to come along and hear my stories. And also I'm very much happy in my lane. I'm not trying to win any awards. I'm not trying to, you know, change the world through my comedy. I actually just want to give people an escape for those 90 minutes and make people laugh. Is it true you don't script your shows that the content's all in your head? Yeah, I've never written any of my material down. They're all like dinner party anecdotes. And it sounds really rock and roll. It sounds very rock and roll. And it stresses me it out makes, a little it bit. It makes me a little bit angry at you to be like, Joel, get <laughs> I know, no. It's, it's like the waiter that be. doesn't write down your order. Yeah. It's like, just pick up a pen. Well, it's, yeah, it's, you're so right. It sounds good, but I've had a whole year off from stand-up. So I've just gotten back on stage and I'm like, oh, cool. I'll go back through and look at some of my old bits. Oh, hang on. I don't write them down. <laughs> yeah. So the other night when I did my first gig back post-COVID, I was like, I was going to drive to the gig, but I was like, oh, no, I'll get an Uber so I can sit in the back. I put my AirPods in and I watched old clips of myself on YouTube to remind myself of some of my material. And it's only watching yourself back on YouTube when you, you realise, okay, those people online that say that I'm really irritating, have a bit of a fair point. <laughs> What do you want out of your career? Like you've done so much so young. I know it's probably a bit of an annoying question because it's like, well, fuck, I've done heaps already. What do you see in the future or what are your like big goals and ambitions? I love TV. I love hosting TV. I love shiny floor reality television. I've made no secret of that, whereas a lot of my comedy contemporaries hate reality TV. I mean, I don't (laughs) want to compete on it. I love hosting. I've hosted a dating show. That was the best fun I've ever, ever had. And so I'd love to do more TV. I'm really enjoying radio more than I thought I would. So I'm loving that. And I just, you know, it's like having a fun life and going through life and making mistakes and then going, "Mm, that's a funny story to tell my audience. (laughs) (laughs) How do you find balance then though when you are sort of living and then thinking, oh, okay, shit, is that a bit of content? Or like is your mind constantly ticking over for the stories and for the jokes or can you really be present sometimes? Mm, Good question. Sometimes I worry that I'm going out of my way to get content, Mm. but I think I've pulled back on that in recent years and realised that it's actually better if it comes to you genuinely. In a long-term relationship, sometimes I'll go, oh, that is a really funny story. And then I go, oh, that's not fair on Jack or that's not fair on my sisters. Or look, I do 
try and run it past it, <laughs> yeah. it on stage. But if it's about me solely, it's going on stage because I'm, I don't know, I just don't really care. Yeah. Have you ever missed the mark? Have you ever like shared something and then been like, oh, fuck, because I did that two years ago on a podcast and got myself Ooh. into trouble with someone I love, like care very, very deeply about where I didn't even think that their filter might be, I'm not comfortable with that being shared. I was just like, that's a funny story that we all find funny. It's a mm. tricky line when you're sharing stories that aren't entirely your own. Yes, I think my ex, he was wonderful. I told a story about our breakup that was very messy and I wrote about it in our book and he was really cool about it. But then I got a special on Netflix and Netflix went through all my material and really wanted the story about the breakup. And I was like, oh, God, I'm going in for like a second punch on this yeah. poor guy. And he sort of he gave me the thumbs up. He's now happily married. We're in touch. We get on great. And he gave me the thumbs up for the book, but when it was like, oh, God, the Netflix special, and I didn't kind of run it past him. And he was once again fine with it, but I just felt like a bit of a jerk. I was yeah. like, okay, you've done that now. Leave him alone. Leave mm. him alone. Let him live his life. <laughs> so he can't escape you. Yeah. Our second last question, Joel, we ask everyone, and we want to throw a hypothetical at you. We want you to imagine that you're walking, you know, into a cafe or somewhere and there's a table of people sitting there talking about you. They might be acquaintances. They might be some of your followers, supporters. As I said, they're having a conversation about you. What do you want them to say about you? Oh, my gosh. I just want them to say that I make them laugh and I bring them a little bit of joy each day because I feel like lately people have sort of misconstrued that comics are in this for some ulterior motive. I genuinely do stand-up comedy because I like making people laugh and I know some people are really irked by me and think that I'm, I don't know, a lot of the comments, particularly when I started radio, were like that I'm this super woke person that's, you know, the head of the cancel culture. I'm like, I think you're confusing me with like <laughs> 20 other people. I genuinely want to make people laugh and also pay my bills. Yeah. 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 And, I lo- and it's a job I love doing and it's a job I've carved out for myself and I'm very proud of. Our final question, what is success to you? How do you define success in your own life? Success to me is... I love that you've come prepped. No one else ever launches straight into an answer. Everyone else sits back for like 30 seconds like, okay, I've got it. I've never seen anyone so excited about answer this either. Go. Success to me is having that doorbell ring and the Uber Eats driver being right there and you've just (laughs) bought yourself a delicious meal on Uber Eats and you're still in your track pants and you've moved 10 metres from the couch. (laughs) That to me is success. And then go and pig out on the couch beside your partner or watching your favourite TV show. That to me is success. After a busy day at work, I can't think of anything better. Look, I can safely say we've never had that response and I love it so much. Joel Creasy. Probably the lamest response ever. No, it's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sitting through a fire alarm with us. We are so grateful to have you and you've made us laugh. So this is successful exercise for you. Thank you so much. This was an absolute blast. What a love circle. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Joel Creasy. If you enjoyed this episode, may we also recommend you listen to the interviews we did with Celia Bacola and Matt O'Kine, both comedians that we did last year. If you want more from Joel, which of course you absolutely do, he is on Instagram at Joel Creasy and he's also touring at the moment with his new show, Messy Bitch. So if that is of interest to you, which I bet it is, you can go into his website, joelcreasy.com.au forward slash shows to find out where he is next performing or if he is performing near you. As for us, well, we release new interview episodes every Monday as well as a pop culture rap episode every Thursday. To be notified every time a fresh episode of Shameless drops, make sure you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts and follow on Spotify. That is all from us, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye.
guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.